Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world. And so it was not us who first loved you, but you who first loved us, you who sought us, you who saved us. So we praise you for the gospel by which you've reconciled sinners like us to yourself. And Father, we acknowledge that every good thing that we have comes from your hand. And so we ask that you would reveal your glory to us now through your word. For unless you speak to us through your word, this time will profit us nothing. So please give us ears to hear, eyes to see who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he calls us to do. And grant to us hearts that would desire to obey your word, no matter what the cost. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. We at First Baptist have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we come to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. So let me just start by Reading our passage, hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We live in a culture of overstatement, hot takes, because that's what draws attention. That's what gets the clicks and the likes. We've got entire shows on ESPN that are devoted to hot takes, right? Like one overstatement after the other. So there's a part of me that kind of just wants to get in on those reindeer games and saying this. But at the same time, right, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that this passage that we're covering this morning is one of the most important sections of the entire gospel because it kind of serves us as a critical junction in the storyline. Looking back, there is a sense in which everything that we've covered so far has been building up to this. Like all the miracles and and the healings and the teachings have all led us to this point where Jesus now asks his disciples who they think he is. And then he leverages their answer to teach them about his identity and his mission. And then looking forward from this point, the topics that he's going to introduce here for the very first time, themes like his death and resurrection, what it means to follow him, dying to self and taking up your cross— These are some of the dominant themes for the rest of the gospel going forward. And so our passage kind of stands right in the middle of what's come before it and what's still yet to come. And that makes it, in my opinion, one of the most important passages in the entire gospel. It's a passage that answers, or at least begins to answer, three fundamental questions that the entire gospel is trying to address. Number one— who is Jesus? Number two, what did he come to do? 
And number three, how then should his followers live in light of number one and number two? And so it's a passage that covers some of the most basic and fundamental truths of Christianity. And so if you're not a Christian, or you're not sure where you stand, or you're a relatively new Christian, it's a really good thing that in God's good providence you are here this morning. Because these are fundamental truths that you absolutely must know. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you've been walking, for the, walking with the Lord for some time now, may this serve as a, a much-needed reminder of the fundamental truths on which hopefully you have built your lives. And so let's look at this really important text. Let's think about those three questions. And we're going to use a three-point outline just to keep track of where we are in the passage. Our three points are going to be the confession of the Christ, the crucifixion of the Christ, and the call of the Christ. And each of those answers one of those questions. Question number one, who is Jesus? Well, that's the confession of the Christ. What did he come to do? That's the crucifixion of the Christ. And how then should his followers live in light of one and two? That's the call of the Christ. So let's start with point number one, the confession of the Christ. That's in verses 18 through 20. You'll see that Luke begins the passage with a somewhat vague opening. Now it happened. He doesn't tell us where any of this occurs, but the other gospel writers will fill us in, and they tell us that all of this is going down in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north, away from the Sea of Galilee. Remember, almost all of the action in this gospel so far has taken place either around or even in uh, the Sea of Galilee, on its coast, right, on its cities. Now we find ourselves in a much more isolated area up north, far away from the multitudes. And that's significant because it's here that Jesus and his disciples would be away from the constant crush of the crowds. And what do we find him doing? Look at verse 18. It happened as he was praying alone. His disciples were with him. Now that word praying, right? like just seeing that word in the Gospel of Luke, like that, that should make your spider senses tingle. Like in this Gospel, pretty much any time anything significant is about to happen, we find Jesus praying. At his baptism, Luke alone of the four Gospel writers tells us that at his baptism, Jesus was praying. And when Jesus chose the 12 apostles from the larger group of his disciples, right, that is a monumental decision. What is Jesus doing before that? Well, he's praying. Next Sunday, we're going to look at Jesus being transfigured, right? One of the most significant events of his earthly ministry. And I will give you one guess as to what he was doing right before he was transfigured. He was praying. And then, of course, his crucifixion, the most significant event of the gospel. What is Jesus doing before his crucifixion? The Garden of the Gethsemane, he is praying. And so when we see, verse 18, that he's praying, this is like smelling dinner from down the hallway, this is like when, when you feel like it's about to rain in your bones. Like we know something important, something significant is about to happen. Obviously, it's not the case that Jesus only prayed when something important was about to happen. No, he was constantly in his Father's presence. And Luke points out for us some of those occasions in which Jesus just went to be with his Father. But Luke does draw special attention to prayer when big things are happening as if to especially point out that these significant events, they're happening as Jesus is closely aligned with his Father's will, doing everything according to the perfect plan of the Trinity. And so now our, our, our curiosity, our, our, our attention is grabbed. He's praying, okay, what's about to happen here? Well, it starts with him asking the disciples a question. Who do the crowd say that I am? Now, if you've been here in recent weeks, you know that's a question that we've already wrestled with in this gospel. Right? The three options that the disciples give here in response, verse 19, they're the same exact three options that Herod was mulling in his head earlier in verses 7 and 8. Right? Option number one, John the Baptist. Option number two, Elijah. Option number three, one of the other prophets of old. And so it's not like Herod has been 
spending too much time on like conspiracy blogs or something like that. The disciples themselves have the same exact reports about public opinion that Herod does. They're all reading the same polls. They're, they're hearing the same things. I, I don't know if, if any of you Gen Z kids are going to get this reference, but for the rest of us, right, think back to Family Feud, right, survey says, and these are the consensus top three answers that everybody would have understood. But as we talked about two weeks ago, they're wrong. Just because they're the consensus doesn't mean that they're right. They're all wrong. Herod is wrong. The crowds are wrong. And so now Jesus gets more direct with his disciples. And he says, you, you, who do you say that I am? The smart folks tell us that in the Greek, the you is in the emphatic position, whatever that means. Basically, as for you, or forget about all the other chatter, right? You, my disciples, you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers for the rest of the group, as he often does, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. Remember the word Christ, right? That's the Greek word, Messiah, that's the Hebrew word. Uh, They both mean the anointed one. Right, referring to Jesus as the long-awaited Savior of God's people. That's who you are. You are the Christ of God. It's again, not an overstatement, not just a hot take. That's one of the most significant statements made in the gospel so far. Now you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Like, we've already known that Jesus is the Christ of God. Well, you're right. We, the readers... We know that Jesus is the Christ, and we've known that for many chapters already in this gospel. Going all the way back to chapter 2, when Jesus was first born, we know that because the angels told us so. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And we know that Jesus is the Christ of God because Luke himself tells us so in Luke 2.26, in the little narrative about Simeon. It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so we know that Jesus is the Lord's Christ. And we know that Jesus is the Christ of God because, well, even the demons. We've spoken before about how the demons know exactly who he is. Even the demons know, Luke 4.41, the demons came out of many saying, you are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. Why not? Because... They knew that he was the Christ. And so by this point in the gospel, like Luke chapter 9, this is old news for us, right? Like we know for certain that Jesus is the promised Christ of God. But here's the thing. This is such a significant statement because this is the first time that the disciples have grasped this. Like they've seen all the the miracles that Jesus has been doing since chapter 4. He's healed the sick, he's cast out demons, he's calmed the storms, he's raised the dead, and most recently, he created bread and fish out of nothing. They've heard the teaching, the the power and the authority with which he taught about the kingdom of God. Think about the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. No one ever spoke like this man. And so they come to the conclusion, based on everything that they've seen and heard, that Jesus is the Christ of God. The crowds, the multitudes, the poles, they all have different opinions about who Jesus is, wrong opinions about who Jesus is. But here's Peter and the disciples. Yet we know what everybody else is saying. We know what everybody else thinks. But as for us, we know that you are the Christ of God. Friends, it's not all that different for us. Everybody around us has an opinion about who Jesus is. He was a moral teacher. He was a humanitarian. He was, a, he was an ordinary person. He was a myth. And it's in light of all of that background noise that we, as the church, testify loud and clear, no, Jesus is the Christ of God. 
And we testify, even as we did earlier this morning with the Apostles' Creed, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Our faith is much more than just a confession. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. There's got to be a life that matches that confession. But our faith is also not less than what we confess. You simply cannot be a Christian unless you can confess like the disciples do here, that Jesus is the Christ of God. And so, point number one, the confession of the Christ. The disciples, represented by Peter, they make this stunning confession, one that I'm arguing the entire book up to this point has been building up to. You are the Christ of God. But don't miss this. This is not an insight that the disciples have just figured out on their own. Luke leaves out Jesus' response to what Peter says here. We can turn to the Gospel of Matthew and fill ourselves in a little bit. Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus said to him, answered Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. As in you certainly didn't get this from the popular consensus. You didn't figure this out by your own human intuitions. Now, the fact that I am the Christ of God, you only know that because it was revealed to you by my Father. That's why you get it. That's why you get it, Peter. Even though most everybody else, see Herod the Tetrarch, is very perplexed. That's why you have eyes to see what so many are blind to. That's why your heart is the good soil, even as those around you, well, their hearts remain hardened or shallow or thorn-infested. Friends, that's such an important thing for each of us to remember, that spiritual truth, like even something as fundamental to our faith as the truth that Jesus is the Christ— can't get any more fundamental than that. But even spiritual truth like that, it's not something that we figure out on our own by natural means. The natural person does not accept the things of God. It's hidden from him. Right? It's foolishness to him. And so it's God who has to open up our eyes. It's God who has to reveal these truths to us. It's God who gives us hearts that even desire that truth. It's God who grants to us the gifts of faith and repentance. It's God who allows us to see that Jesus is the Christ. And if all of that is true, that flesh and blood profit us nothing in the spiritual realm, but it's all a a gracious gift from God, well, that ought to greatly humble us when it comes to spiritual knowledge and insight, should it not? You are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. That is something that Peter and the disciples, they got that right by the revelation of God. And hopefully many of us in this room, we've got that right by the revelation of God. But now I ask, what about you? You, who do you say that he is? Friends, some of you have been here for weeks And for months, we've gone through this gospel, and so you've heard sermon after sermon after sermon about Jesus and what he's come to do. Like you've heard Luke's trustworthy testimony. And so I ask, who do you say that he is? Is he the Christ of God? And if you say that he's the Christ of God, if God's opened your eyes to that truth, does your life then reflect that? Jesus is the Christ of God. May God open all of our eyes to that truth afresh this morning. And some of us perhaps for the very first time. Point number one, the confession of the Christ. Now you might think, given a confession so glorious, you might think that Jesus would then tell his disciples to go and, oh, just go and tell everybody. Go tell the world. But he doesn't. As a matter of fact, 
He does the exact opposite. Verse 21. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. At first, that's a little bit puzzling. Why? Well, part of it is that it simply wasn't yet the time in God's plan for that news to be spread. That's going to come primarily in the book of Acts after Jesus' death and resurrection. But it's also because the disciples, while they get the answer correct, you are the Christ of God, like that's the right answer, but they didn't understand what that meant. It's like one of those tests from school where you have to not only write the correct answer, but you have to explain how you got your answer. The disciples here, they get the correct answer. But that whole, like, show your work thing, well, that was quite off. They know that Jesus is the Christ, but they don't know what that means. And so Jesus elaborates on what it means that he is the Christ of God by telling them, point number two, about the crucifixion of the Christ. The Son of Man, verse 22, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Remember my non-overstatement about how significant this passage is in this gospel? Well, just like it's the first time in the gospel that the disciples have acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ, so also this is the first time in the gospel that Jesus has explicitly stated that he's going to die and be resurrected. Like we've seen hints and allusions before, Uh, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, like hints and allusions, but this is the first time that it's been explicitly stated that Jesus is going to die. Now to us, that makes all the sense in the world. Like even the youngest child in this church, like if they know one thing about Jesus, it's that he died for their sins, right? Everybody knows that. And so to us, like verse 22 is not really that shocking, not really that controversial of a verse. But to the disciples, to first century Jews like them who just didn't have a category in their minds for a suffering Messiah, like this makes absolutely no sense. Why would the Christ of glory, the long-awaited Messiah, why would he have to suffer? That's why Peter responds so strongly, even rebuking Jesus. Luke doesn't record this exchange either, but Matthew and Mark do. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You're the Christ of God. The Christ of God is not supposed to suffer. What are you talking about? And of course, Jesus replies with a strong rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. But Peter's thinking here, his thought process here, he certainly wouldn't have been alone in this. His thought process is that the Christ, the Messiah, well, he's supposed to be a conquering figure. He's supposed to be this great military leader and political ruler. He's supposed to overthrow the Romans and liberate the Jews and crush all of our enemies and reign as our king. So what Peter doesn't get, at least at this point, is that suffering and being rejected and dying, like those aren't just tragic things that might happen to Jesus. No, those things are exactly why Jesus came. That's exactly what it means for him to be the Christ of God. So I don't want you to miss the most important word in verse 22. It's that word, must. It's not just that the Son of Man will suffer many things and will be rejected and will be killed and will be raised, like Jesus just speaking prophetically. No, the Son of Man must must undergo all of those things because that's his mission. Divine necessity. Like he must do all of those things as the Christ of God. So let's just think about them one at a time. He must, must suffer many things. 
There's a sense in which that's true of his entire incarnation. He's just a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as Isaiah 53 prophesied about him. Jesus, eternally God, takes on human flesh and becomes like one of us. He enters into his own creation and that alone entails suffering, like entering into a sin-cursed world as a sinless being. Add to that all the suffering at the hands of men that he would experience through his life, especially in the days leading up to his death. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Next, he must, must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. We've seen that manifesting already in this gospel. They're, They're mad about Jesus spending time with tax collectors. They're mad about Jesus breaking their rules. And all of that, of course, is going to culminate in them falsely accusing him of blasphemy. And the Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Next, he must be killed. As the Jewish leaders then get Pontius Pilate to sentence him to death by crucifixion, he must be killed. In one sense, Jesus is just like any other criminal executed by Rome back then. He's hung on a cross to die. But remember, this is about divine necessity. He's got to, he must do this in order to accomplish his plan because his death, unlike any other death, would be a substitutionary one. He would die in the place of sinners who deserve death because of their sins. And so he must die. He must die so that the justice and the wrath of God towards sinners would be satisfied. So that sinners like me and you might be forgiven. And the Son of Man must be killed. And then, of course, he must be raised. Like Peter would later say, it was not possible for him to be held by death. We've already seen in this gospel that Jesus has the power over death. And so from his own grave, he must be raised to conquer death forever on behalf of those he came to save. The Son of Man must, on the third day, be raised. And so if Jesus is the Christ, and Christ not as the world understands it, Christ not as first century Judaism would have understood it, Christ not as Peter and the disciples understood it at this time, but Christ as God the three in one has planned it from eternity past. Like if Jesus is that Christ, the Christ of God, then he must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and be raised. Friends, our religion, our faith, is one of the cross. It is one centered on a suffering servant. I've said this many times, but it's worth repeating. Jesus did not come primarily to do miracles, heal the sick, tell stories, to simply be a Christ of glory. Even if that's what the crowds And even his disciples at times, what they wanted him to be, he came to seek and save the lost. And that requires, right, must, that requires that he suffer and die, just as he says here. But the people, the people just don't get that. All the way to the crucifixion itself, they just don't get that You probably know that Jesus was mocked at his crucifixion, but consider how he was mocked. Luke 23, 35. The people stood by, watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The underlying premise of that mocking is that the Christ should not suffer. Why would the Christ of God, and and notice that the mockers there use the same exact words that Peter uses here, the Christ of God, why would the Christ of God be crucified and die like a lowly criminal? Come on, you say that you're the Christ of God. Do something. Save yourself. They just didn't get that on the cross. As he is suffering and dying, 
Jesus is doing exactly what he came to do, what he must do. Point number two, the crucifixion of the Christ. Going back to what we said earlier, only those to whom God has given eyes to see are going to get that. That being the Christ of God means that Jesus must go suffer and die. And so far we've established in this passage who Jesus is. He is the Christ of God. That's the confession of the Christ. And we've established what he's come to do. He came to suffer and die for sinners and be raised again at the crucifixion of the Christ. Well, that leads us to point number three, the call of the Christ. The call of the Christ. Now, Jesus tells his disciples here what it's going to look like for them to follow this suffering Christ. And then by extension, this passage speaks to each and every one of us who would name Jesus as our Savior. What does the Christian life look like? What kind of life does Christ call his people to? In short, I'm going to give you the punchline up front. It's a hard life, but it's absolutely worth it. Now let's look at the details, starting in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Follow me, following Jesus. It's a, a phrase that maybe we kind of throw around a lot in Christian circles. If you ask uh, 10 different Christians from different churches what it means to follow Jesus, you're going to get 11 different answers. But rather than coming up with our own answers, what does it, it mean for me to follow Jesus? Well, what we need to do is we need to hear what Jesus himself says about following him. But before we do that, let's just be very clear on one thing. Jesus is talking here to his disciples about what it means to live as a disciple, like what following him as a disciple looks like. He is not telling them how they might become a disciple. And so I don't want anybody to think, okay, I want to get saved. I want to be a Christian. Okay, so here's what I got to do. I just got to follow Jesus in this way, and then I'll be saved. You see, that, that would miss the point. Now, first of all, everything that Jesus says in this section is absolutely impossible for a natural man to do on his own. But second and more importantly, to think that we have to do things in order to get saved, well, that's just a misunderstanding of salvation. Salvation is by grace alone. It's not by what we do. Our salvation begins where Peter begins in this narrative, with God giving him the eyes to see the glorious truth that Jesus is the Christ of God. And that means... Peter didn't get this at first, but, but that means that Jesus the Christ would suffer and die on his behalf and then on the third day be raised. And now, right, only after that has happened, now as those who have freely received that gift of salvation from God, now the disciples are called to follow Jesus in the way that's described in these verses. So with that clarification in mind, Let's look at what Jesus says. What does it mean to follow him? What does a life of following him look like? Well, first, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. The Christian life, the life of following Jesus, is one of self-denial. Now, when we think of self-denial, maybe we think of, I don't know, saying no to a second serving of cake or not hitting snooze on the alarm again. Like individual decisions that we have to make throughout the day in which we say no to something that we want. But Jesus here is referring to something much greater than that. This is not just about individual decisions. This is about a life that is characterized by the denial of self. You see, each and every one of us is born with a sin nature. And part of that sin nature is that we want to make our lives all about ourselves. It's all about me, right? It's me first. Mine. 
Now, if you don't think that that's a part of our innate sin nature, I am going to sign you up for the nursery. And I guarantee you that by the end of the session, you will agree with me. Like, you don't have to teach kids, you don't have to teach babies, you don't have to teach toddlers to put themselves first. So from a young age, right, from a young age, we think that we rule and reign over our lives. And as we grow up, that then manifests itself in a million different selves, as in self-worship, self-dependence, self-preservation, self-gratification, and we're self-seeking, self-asserting, self-centered. And so all of those selves are the underlying principles that drive everything that we do in life. And that's the enemy that we're up against in self-denial, right? Denying that self. And so if we're going to follow Christ, that self needs to die. That's why salvation isn't just a little bit of reform here and there, just a little bit of practicing self-denial with regard to that sin or, or this sin. No, what we need is a radical transformation in which your old self dies and it's replaced by an entirely new creation of God. And that's something that only God can do. And so this kind of wholesale self-denial that Jesus is talking about here, it starts with us coming to the end of ourselves and simply crying out for God to save us. And if and when God does grant us that new heart, when that old man is gone and, and the new has come, when he grants to us new affections, not for our own self's glory, but for his, well then we can begin to live out this self-denial in the day-to-day -day of our lives. Saying no to sin and its temptations, not necessarily because of the consequences, but simply because you want to glorify God with your life and not glorify yourself. Or being willing to give up anything in this life that would get in the way of you walking closely with the Lord. Or rejecting a life based on self-interest and self-everything, but submitting your life to Jesus and his will, or completely being devoted to him with your life as a living sacrifice. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. But second, continuing in that verse, let him take up his cross daily. It's an expression that the disciples would have understood immediately. Remember, Jesus wasn't the only person in history to be crucified. Far from it. It was a fairly common method of execution that the Romans used. And so everybody would have been familiar with the fact that part of being condemned to death on a cross was that the person would have to carry their crossbeam to their own execution. Now, for some of the disciples, this was literally fulfilled. Like one day, they would have to take up their cross and themselves be crucified. But obviously, Jesus means it here as a figure of speech. Because nobody is crucified daily, in a literal sense. So what does it mean to take up your cross daily? Well, it's about being dead. It's about being crucified to the world, to your old self, to sin, it's about enduring the hatred and the rejection and the ridicule and the suffering and perhaps even martyrdom, your cross. All of that that comes with associating with Jesus and his cross. We can't love Jesus' cross and refuse to take up our own. The servant is not greater than his master. And so if they hated him, they will hate his disciples. And so as a believer, right, you're living in this world the sin-cursed world, while you yourself are dead to sin and dead to the world, you've been crucified to the world. You've been crucified with Christ. And so you say with Paul, I die every day. Death is at work in us. That's the life that Christ calls his disciples to willingly, voluntarily, knowingly embrace in taking up their cross daily. And so what does it mean to follow Christ? Well, in Jesus' words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
Now, lest we think that this is like next-level Christianity, like I'm, I love Jesus, and I, I love that Jesus died for my sins, but I'm not ready to start denying myself because of him. I'm not ready to make sacrifices and changes. I'm, I'm not all about this taking up my cross thing yet. Well, it just doesn't work that way. This is not next-level Christianity. This is fundamental to Christianity. Like, this has to characterize every believer, right? Look at how Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. And this is even all the more clearer. Luke chapter 14, verse 27, when Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, whoever doesn't do that cannot be my disciple. So this isn't like advanced placement Christianity. This is fundamental. What does it mean to be a Christian? But now look at what Jesus does in the next three verses. And I just, I love this. I love this. He gives us three, four statements. Four, that's F-O-R. Three, four statements. Look at verse 24. For whoever would save his life. Verse 25, for what does it profit a man? Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. And so here are three, four statements that present the logic of why a disciple should be willing to make costly sacrifices like denying himself and like taking up his cross to follow Jesus. I hope you see how wonderful that is. Because here's the thing, Jesus is Lord. And so if he simply commanded us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and following him, like we as people must obey. He doesn't have to give us reasons. He doesn't have to give us logic. He doesn't have to give us support as to why we ought to obey any given command. Like because he said so is more than enough for us to obey. But Jesus graciously gives us this logical progression in verses 24 through 26 so that we as people might know the why. That our obedience might be strengthened by and grounded in understanding why obedience to this is such a good thing. It's like what God says in Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together. That's exactly what Jesus is inviting us to do here. So why? Why is a life of self-denial and cross-bearing for Jesus' sake, why is that totally worth it? Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's a paradox. You know what a paradox is? It's a a seeming contradiction that makes us pause so that we might think about it, dwell on it. All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And the paradox there, it provokes thought. You say, well, what does that mean? Same thing here. Whoever would save his life. So that's referring to the person who tries to save his life by not denying himself and not taking up his cross, not following Jesus— Well, what happens to that person? That person will lose his life in terms of eternity, in terms of his soul. But whoever loses his life for my sake, and that's referring to the person who, in following Jesus, lives out verse 23, right? He denies himself and he takes up his cross daily. What happens to that person? That person will be saved in terms of eternity, in terms of his soul. And so Jesus gives us the eternal ramifications of being his disciple. Yes, in this life, if you follow me, you will have to deny yourself. And you will have to take up your cross. And you will have to endure suffering. But from the perspective of eternity, any cost you endure now is totally going to be worth it. Which leads us to the next statement in verse 25. Four, and there's our second four. Four, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? If verse 24 is a paradox, verse 25 is hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. It's, a, it's an extreme illustration. Kind of like if you say, I have a million things to do today, 
You know, a million, that's a lot. No, it's making the point, right, hyperbole, that we have a lot to do. So here Jesus says, suppose that in your attempt to save your life, you don't follow me, but instead you pursue everything that the world has to offer and, here's the hyperbole part, and you actually succeed in gaining the entire world. Like the earth is yours and the fullness thereof. Wow, what a life that would be. But in the process of saving yourself in that way, you forfeited your soul. Because of your focus in the here and now, you've neglected eternity. And so when you die, well then what? What has having the whole world in this life profited you in eternity? And the answer, of course, is absolutely nothing. Arguing then from the greater to the lesser. If, even if you had everything in this life that still is not worth your eternal soul, then why would you pursue after even less in this life at the expense of eternity? Friends, this is the most foolproof logic that you can find. Why should you be willing to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus in this life? The simple answer is because this life is like nothing compared to eternity. And so if saving my life by not following Jesus, if that means losing eternity, then that's a terrible decision. But if I lose everything in this life because I followed Christ, but I have eternity because of him, well, that's certainly worth it. Like Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And on the flip side, Jim, he is a fool who pursues what he cannot keep at the cost of what he will forever lose. That is airtight logic that Jesus gives us there. But the sad truth is that millions forfeit their souls for far less than the whole world for simple bowls of stew. Some in this very gospel are going to forfeit their souls for just 30 pieces of silver. And so unbelievers are like, like the little kid who thinks that a penny is worth more than a dime because the penny is bigger. Well, this life is more valuable than eternity simply because it's nearer. And Jesus says to his disciples, don't, don't, no, don't let that kind of worldly foolishness prevent you from following me. That leads us to the next statement in verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. So let's just take a step back here and follow the argument. Jesus calls his disciples to follow him uh, through a life of self-denial, taking up your cross daily. That might seem like losing your life because it's hard. But from an eternal perspective, that's actually saving your life. And that's a good decision because what does it profit you to save your life but forfeit your soul? And what does it mean to forfeit your soul? Well, Verse 26, it's the Son of Man being ashamed of you when he comes in his glory. Jesus saying, I never knew you. Depart from me. And certainly no disciple wants that. So in conclusion, here's the main point. Right? Jesus' disciples must follow him no matter what the cost is in this life, simply because the kingdom of God is totally worth it. And so you will know that the kingdom of God is worth it. Well, some of you disciples are going to get a little preview of that. Verse 27, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What's that referring to? Well, look at the very next verse. Now about eight days after these sayings, and then we have the transfiguration. And it's exactly the same setup in Matthew 
and in Mark, like right after Jesus says this, the very next narrative is the transfiguration. So Jesus is saying here that it's a down payment, like a little preview of the kingdom of God, which is going to be more fully revealed after his death and resurrection and ascension, which many of the disciples will see for themselves. And it's ultimately consummated at his second coming. But some of you are going to see a little preview of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. We'll talk about that next Sunday. Let me close with just one more point of application. Friends, Jesus is very clear here that anyone who follows him as a true disciple must deny himself and take up his cross daily. But what does that mean for me and you? What does that mean practically for your life as a disciple? Well, that's where the Holy Spirit, who dwells in each of you who are Christians, that's where the Holy Spirit works, right, through his word, to bring about repentance and change and sanctification. And so, brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you is to this week, just spend time examining your life according to this text. Are there areas of my life in which I am not denying myself, but I'm just living for myself? Is it my job or my schooling? Is it the way I measure success? Is it my five-year plan? Is it my family life? Is it my parenting? Is it my money? Is it my time? Or are there areas in my life where I'm deliberately choosing ease and comfort and acceptance with people over being obedient to what I know to be the Word of God? Are there ways in which I live as if I was ashamed of Jesus and his words, refusing to carry the cross that I'm called to? And what would it look like? What would it look like for me to lose my life for Jesus? Like what sacrifices am I being called to make? What are things that I am reluctant to give up for his sake? These aren't questions that I can answer for you. That is the Holy Spirit's job. But may we, who are God's people, may we wrestle with these things until he gives us clarity. Let's pray. Father, we who are your disciples by your grace, we pray that you would help us to apply this text to our lives that we might live for your glory. And Father, we pray for those who are not disciples, who are not Christians. God, we pray that today would be the day of salvation in which they would see that your Son indeed is the Christ of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name.